passage as described for us in a familiar passage in Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 15. I've entitled this message, Moral Battles, because we're in a moral battle today, in case you haven't noticed. When God, country, and church disagree, what do we do when God, country, and church disagree? Now, I'm going to take just a moment to set up what we're going to be dealing with because I think it's important for us to deal in the context of the Scripture in order for us to understand exactly what we need to take from this passage this morning as we reflect upon the moral battle, the moral condition of our nation, the United States of America today. Not the world in and of itself, but just our nation. Let's take a look at the context of Mark chapter 11. Let's understand what is there at the foundation of this battle that takes place, this conflict between Christ, the country, and the church. But this is not a conflict that happens just between Jesus and the church. It is a conflict that is happening in Mark 11 between Christ and the country. Why do you say that? Well, the religious elite of their day were basically the legislators of morality. They were the ones who not only wrote the law, but the, who enforced the law. That was their responsibility. They wrote the laws and they enforced the laws. The religious leaders of the day, the church, wrote the laws and enforced the laws. And so as a result of this, this, this tradition that was going on in the nation of Israel, and I know they had a Roman government over them, they had an invading force, but primarily they allowed the Israelite people to govern themselves as long as there was no conflict among the people and there wasn't a revolution that, proceed, or that preceded something. And so virtually the, the religious elite were somewhat the government. They were the supreme court, if you please, of their nation. And they conspired together in a setting somewhere at some time, some place, that while God said that there was to be no marketing of anything that would take place prior to the Passover inside of the temple walls, that they would concede and make that become reality. They would redefine the law. God had ordained that, that and the practice and the tradition was that, that the marketing that took place to accommodate the Tens of thousands of people from all over the world, the Jews and the Gentiles alike, who professed faith in Jehovah, who wanted to come during the Passover to come to Jerusalem to worship God. There was a market on the Mount of Olives that had been conducted for decades in which they could then take their money and exchange it into shekels to meet the requirement of the Old Testament law to pay their temple tax with shekels, but also then to purchase livestock or animals in which they could use them to offer upon the altar for the sacrifice and the atonement of their sin. That went on for a long time in Mount of Olives. But they decided, these religious elite, this Supreme Court, decided that they would then redefine, reinterpret God's law and bring the marketplace into the outer court of the temple. And they set up the market that would facilitate and assist and help the worshipers that would come to Jerusalem from all over the world to purchase their, their offerings and to exchange their money into shekels right there in the outer courts in the court of the Gentiles. And as a result of that, it was chaos inside of the outer courts. And so as a result of this, this is what Jesus is confronting in Mark eleven fifteen. He is actually going against not just the church, but the country, because the country and the church were one and the same. 
Now, let's bring it to today's reality. Our country has redefined what human sexuality is just a week and a half ago. It has taken what God has said and what we founded our nation on and has redefined, reinterpreted human sexuality to mean that it is something more than just a man and a woman, but it means man and man and woman and woman. It's redefined. It's reinterpreted. It's made what was not right into what is right. They have superseded their authority. They have taken hold of what God had said and redefined it for political correctness and for the freedom of those who choose their sexual orientation. That's what we've done. And as a result of that, now most churches, not all churches, are in conflict with not just the country, but they're in conflict now with the Word of God because there are many churches who claim to be Christians who have embraced this political correctness and have sided with the government and have concluded that the government is right, not God, and they have embraced this human sexual preference now as norm. And we in America today are going to see a progressive declension that is going to be a slippery slope that's going to result in the same product or the same outcome that has already happened in many nations across the world. I just came from a week of mission trip in a beautiful country called Canada that desperately needs the gospel. And they are so politically correct and so passive-aggressive that there is, is no moral standard by which they are, are using as a compass. Our country has lost its compass because I'm convinced Christians and the churches have lost their convictions. And I'm also convinced that what is going to happen in this slippery slope is those churches and those Christians who decide to stand for what God says and not what the political correctness says are going to be under extreme scrutiny and, and there's going to be a, a, an intensity uh, that's going to take place in the next decade or so in which we are going to be persecuted for our beliefs. It's going to happen in America. Who would have ever thought it? Now, some of you are saying, well, that, that, that's far-fetched, isn't it? How far-fetched is it to ever believe that our Supreme Court would rule just the way they did a week and a half ago? How far-fetched is it for us to see the things that we see on our televisions and we see in our nation today? There's been a moral shift. And the reason for that is because our nation is made up of men and women who are born that way. They are born that way. Yes, they are. Now, wait a minute before you disagree. Why are they born that way? They're born depraved. They're born sinners. And because they're born sinners and because they have inherit depravity, they are simply yielding to that depravity and committing a sin that is heinous and, 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 and is a violation of the standard of God. You and I were there when we, when we, before we came to faith in Christ, and it wasn't until we recognized our depravity and our sinfulness before a holy God and that Christ is the solution to our sin and we placed our faith and trust in him, we were no different than they are. But now we have received the new life the standard of God, and we've bought into the, to the, to the Christ thing, and we live our lives according to the Bible and according to the precepts or the footsteps of Jesus and his word. And so because of the depravity of, our, of humanity and those humans now are governing our world, irrespective and irregardless of what they may claim and say they believe, 
what they are projecting in, on us is complete depravity. Because our human nature is a depraved nature. But for those of us who have the indwelling Holy Spirit of Christ and we're moving toward righteousness through a process called sanctification by grace through faith in which we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ, how do we then battle this moral failure? How do we deal with this corrupt society? How do we engage in the depravity of our moral world? Jesus showed us the way and. Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 15. I'd like to, for you to open your Bibles and let's take a look at that. In Christ's moral conflict, because there is going to be conflict between us and the world, it's inevitable, it's unavoidable, it's going to happen. It's happening right now in workplaces across the nation. It's happening around water coolers right now. It's happening uh, in, in manufacturing business, it's happening in schools, it's happening on playgrounds, it's happening in neighborhoods. There is a conflict that is about to arise and it's going to escalate, not decrease. How do we deal with it? How did Jesus deal with it? First of all, let's look at his fearless entrance into the very heart of the matter. Christ was fearless in that he entered into the conflict. He entered into the conflict. He didn't run from it. He was fearless, and he entered into the heart of the conflict. I think the tendency that we have when there's conflict is to be passive-aggressive, to remain silent, not to speak out. And while we speak out, I think there are certain ways, and we'll talk about that and how we should speak out, but we need to be fearless and we need to engage the culture and engage the community with the gospel of Christ and to be fearless about the gospel that transformed us can also transform them and transcend their human depravity. Let's take a look at what happens in verse 15 in the first little section of that sentence. And they came to Jerusalem... And he entered the temple. They came to Jerusalem and they entered the temple. The day before we learn in Mark chapter 11, Jesus sends two disciples into Jerusalem to fetch a donkey in which they do and they bring it to him. And we learn that the triumphal entry begins to take place. And Jesus rides that donkey into the narrow streets of Jerusalem and they herald him as king. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one that God has promised. He is their savior. Tens upon thousands of people worshipped him, honored him, and elevated him to the position of ruler and king. That happened. It was a glorious time in the concluding ministry of Christ. It was his coronation day. And following that incredible moment, he makes his way up the steps and into the court of Gentiles, the outer court, in which there was all this commotion. Now, it was the close of the day. It was near the end of the day. And he stands at the entrance of the temple. And the Bible says in Mark chapter 11 that Jesus sort of looked around. He assessed what was going on in the Gentile court, in the outer court. And he noticed as he walked into the entrance that there was a marketplace that had been placed at the entrance there. Now, why would they place it at the entrance? Because that's the best place to do business. As soon as people are coming in, they could accommodate then the exchange of money and the purchase of animal sacrifices. And he's standing there, and he's watching this go on. He is taking a look. He is, he is looking around and assessing everything that is going on, and he realizes this is wrong. This is not right. 
This is a violation of what God had said and how they were to treat this very sacred, holy temple where God dwelt and people were to come and to encounter Jehovah and atone for their sin. And we see then that Jesus enters in Jerusalem now following that that event the day before. It's now the day that he goes into the temple well, following that day, he, takes his, he, he leaves, it's evening, goes to the Mount of Olives, spends the night, and then comes back into Jerusalem. Here we find the text, verse 15, and they came back to Jerusalem the following day. This entrance is a lot different than the other entrance. Uh, go back to the other one. We're not there yet. Thank you, WR. This entrance is different than the other entrances. Uh, there's no fanfare. There's no welcome. There's no recognition. There's no coronation. Nobody even knows that he's there. Can you imagine how quick of a change that was in the city of Jerusalem? Christ is quietly, quickly walking through the narrow streets of Jerusalem, but he's on a mission. He's on a mission to go to the temple. (laughs) And once he gets to the temple, I believe he stands at the entrance of the temple like he did the evening before, and he begins to assess, to analyze what's going on. I think he takes just a minute. How many of you saw uh, the Superman movie? Anybody see the Superman movie? You need to see it. It's probably the best Superman there ever was. Okay, I, I don't like. I'm not saying you suggesting you should go see it. Okay, <laughs> I saw it. I mean, it's Superman, and there's a time or two in that movie he stands there like this. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and I could see Jesus, like Superman, standing at the entrance of the court of the Gentiles like this. You know, muscles. Pumped out, powerful, authoritative, assessing the situation. And as I thought about that, I, I, I came back to this principle here, and, and I think it's important for us to, to think about. Before we take any action to correct the conflict, it's important that we analyze the situation carefully. Jesus not only did early on in, in Mark 11, but I think he does here as well as he enters into the, he just takes just a moment to reflect upon what's going on. And I think there are times in which we know we are right and the church or the government may be wrong. And in order for us to just dive in and let our emotions take the best of us and let our words not be intentional, not being deliberate, not being thought out, Jesus never does that. He's very intentional. He's very decisive. He always acts at the right moment, and he always acts in the right way. And I think we who are his disciples need to learn from Christ, and that before we jump in to the heat of the battle and seize what is rightfully ours as believers, that we need to analyze the situation carefully and to seek God's wisdom and God's direction. I think Jesus all night long when he was in Mount of Olives must have prayed and prayed for Jerusalem like he had never prayed before and sought wisdom from God as to how he should act. Before you enter into any conflict with any person, with anyone, with any group of people, take the time to step back, let your emotions settle, let your mind focus, let your heart get right, seek the wisdom of God, and as you analyze that situation, then fearlessly enter into the conflict. Number two, he not only fearlessly entered into the conflict, but notice he faithfully, uh, he forcefully executed his plan. Christ had a plan of action. Now, I can see Jesus as he's standing there, nobody's paying any attention to him. 
He's completely oblivious to anyone who's in the outer court, who's in the court of the Gentiles. They don't recognize, they don't see Jesus at all. So he's standing there, and notice what happens. Then he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought into the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He begins then to execute the plan that he had received from the Father, I believe, and he drives out the sellers and the buyers. He, he, he doesn't discriminate against anyone. He drives out both the buyers and the sellers. Now, they had set up this marketplace in the entrance, and Jesus is standing in the entrance, and exactly how, we don't know. Maybe he picked them up by the shirt collar, and he, he, he threw them out. He threw them out. Sound passive-aggressive to you? Sound hostile, doesn't it? He, he was using drastic measures And he began to pull them out. And he caused them to leave, to exit the outer court, and to go out from inside of the temple courtyard. They were no longer in the temple courtyard. They were outside in the the patio there that led into the outer court. And can you imagine one moment you're here, and the next minute you're over here going, how'd I get here? I mean, he's doing that. Not to one, not to two, but to many he drives them out, both the sellers and the buyers. They're, they're, they're the guys there who are there for commerce. They're there for commerce. They're not just there for commerce. They're, for, they're there to make money. And they were making money. Ever been to a foreign country and, and took your dollar bills and tried to exchange them for the, for the currency there? What's there? There's a fee, isn't there? And you go, well, how can that be fair? I mean, it should be dollar per dollar, Right? Uh, it costs money to change American dollars into Canadian dollars. I didn't think that was fair because a dollar's a dollar, whether it's Canadian or American. Now, theirs are a little bit more elaborate looking than ours. But it's not a, an exact exchange. There's always a fee. And these guys were charging a fee to take maybe the, the Roman money or any other money and changing it into shekels, which is a requirement in order for them to meet the tradition of, of paying the temple tax into shekels. And they were making a pretty hefty profit on that. And the closer it got to the end uh, or the beginning of the Passover, I can imagine the more money they were making. And there was a lot of activity going on, a lot of banking that was taking place. And Jesus begins to just grab people and throw them out, these these people who are there for commerce. But there are also the people there who are there for convenience. These are the, the buyers. Why are they there for convenience? Because they were not willing to sacrifice the necessary price in order to carry their offering or their temple tax on the Mount of Olives into the temple. You see, the priests wanted to make it convenient for people like us who would make the journey to pilgrimage, who were Gentiles, so that we could, once we entered the court, we could buy and we could just, like there. I mean, there, there's not much to it, is there? Pretty easy. It's convenient. And I think they were thrown out primarily because they were more interested in their own convenience than they were the sacrifice that is required in order to worship Jehovah God. But notice here, I think, the demolishing then and the destruction of what happens. He destroys, then we see the tables. And the idea here is that Jesus takes a table and he flips it over. 
I mean, he flips them over, just table after table. He goes through the market and flips them over. And remember, it's in the height of the exchange period, the most lucrative time of doing business, and the exchanges are going on, and he turns the tables, and money's flying everywhere, and people are screaming and yelling, my money, my money. They're dead. I mean, diving into the dirt, begin to collect. I can imagine there are some who are trying to collect what doesn't belong to them, and there's scuffles and commotions and arguments going on as to what transactions were and how they were, and Jesus goes through and he's turning these tables over. Not only that, but he's, he's destroying, he's kicking down all of the cages in which were contained the doves for the poor to purchase to offer as sacrifices. I'm not sure exactly why Mark records just the doves, but I'm convinced there were more than just doves in the livestock area of the courtyard. I think there were bulls who were there because bulls were what wealthy people purchased and doves were what poor people purchased so they could at least have an animal sacrifice. But he mentions the poorest sacrifice, meaning that they were taking advantage of even the poor. That's how low, low they stooped. They were taking advantage of even the poor, making a profit off of them. And so notice then in verse 14, he denies passageway through the outer court to those who are walking through the court. Now, why would they be walking through the court? They've not come there to worship. Why are they there? They're there because they are coming from outside of the temple, let's say the Mount of Olives, and they are coming into the city of Jerusalem, and they have decided there's a shortcut, and they can save themselves some steps, so they're going to go through the outer court, get it? A shortcut through the outer court into the city streets of Jerusalem. They were not there to worship. They were there as a shortcut. And Jesus is denying these people access into the outer court. Get, get this incredible display of authority, this divine authority of Jesus. He not only turns over the tables, kicks over and releases the livestock, but he stands at the entrance and says, you can't come in if you're going through and you're making this a shortcut. You can't. And nobody dares defy him. Not a soul resists him. No one rejects it. I mean, obviously there were Roman guards who could see into the inner court, and upon seeing what Jesus was doing, not a single Roman steps in. Obviously there were temple guards who were there to secure, to make sure that there was no theft and things were going on. Not a single temple soldier, not a single one of them stops Jesus. They do in John 2, I think it's 2 or 3, but they don't hear he is displaying this incredible divine authority, and, and he is Lord of the house, and he is taking charge of what rightfully belongs to him as the Messiah, as the Son of God, and he is displaying this incredible divine authority, and no one stops him. Keep in mind, this is at the close of his three-year ministry, and everybody has heard him preach, and they've seen the miracles that he's done, and there's not a single person that's going to stand in his way and say, you can't do that here. That's what he does. And so the application for us is simple, I think. That we, like Jesus, when we need to address sin, we do it courageously. Courageously. I think there's a tendency, I think, on many of our parts that, that we can become passive-aggressive. And that we just kind of sit back. We don't engage. We don't step into the mix. We don't 
enter into the conflict because unless you need psychological help, most of us in this room don't like conflict. I said, unless you need psychological help. Now, there's some of you who love conflict. You need help. And for that, we have a young lady in our staff who would be glad to see you as long as you have insurance. Uh, If you don't have insurance, you can see one of us pastors, but we have trouble with the same thing you have trouble with, so we're all in trouble. But we need to address the sin, not only in our own lives, but I think sometimes the sin in the lives of others, sometimes even sin in the life of the church, and sometimes sin in the life of the nation. And we don't need to do it fearlessly. Jesus was never afraid. He never compromised. He never sought political correctness. He was always there to courageously confront the sin that was before him, and the objective was to stop, to cease, to, to, to assist, and to, 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 to stop the sin that was being committed. And so should we. Number three, we see in this text his fearless interest, his forceful execution, but three, his faithful exhortation. There's an exhortation in this text, and, and the, the imagery here is that once Jesus has done all of this and all the commotion is over, there's, there's a quietness now. There's silence. The idea is that the commotion has died down and all of this disruption is sort of seized. And Jesus now seizes this opportune moment. He steps up to the plate. He takes the spotlight. He assumes the platform. And he begins to do what he's always done. He preaches. He proclaims his message. Notice what he says in the verse, verse 17. And he was teaching them and praying to them. And and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers or a den of thieves. Notice the method of delivering this proclamation. He spoke. He spoke very clearly, very distinctly, so they could hear and they could understand very simply the message that he had. He spoke it. It was loud enough so that everyone in the courtyard could hear what he was saying. And the objective of what he was saying was to teach. It was to instruct. It was to inform. It was to make them wise about what God's word said and their violation of what the word of God indicated to them in the temple court. But notice his message is very clear. It is very simple. Notice he says, my house. He says, my house. He's telling them that he is Lord of the house. He possesses the temple. You see, they believed that the temple was theirs. And they could do with the temple whatever they wanted. And he is reminding them, this is my house, not yours. And you have come into my house. And you have taken what doesn't rightfully belong to you. I possess this house. Notice his presence. He says, it is my house. A house reminds me of his presence. And inside of the temple was the Shekinah glory of God where God dwelt. And he was reminding them that you are violating my temple in my presence. It's one thing to commit a sin thinking somehow that we're doing it in secret, in the dark, so that God doesn't see it. Because most of us in here honestly think that, don't we? 
When we gossip or we lie or we steal or we cheat or we look or we think, we think we're doing it in private because if we ever were to think that we're doing it in the presence of God, we more than likely would never do it. But here he's saying to them, you are doing this in my presence. You think I'm not here. You think I don't see, but God sees, God hears, and God knows what you're doing. And then he reminds them of the purpose of the temple. It should be a house of prayer. What is it for? It's to reconcile people to God so they can walk in communion and in fellowship with him. That's the purpose of the temple. You have prostituted the house of worship, this sacred place. And then notice the people that are to gather there to worship. He uses the word nations. Isaiah 51 says and uses the word nations. God used Isaiah to prophesy that the nations would worship him. You see, the Jew... Uh, the Israelite only allowed the Gentiles in the outer court. They couldn't go in the other courts, in the, the court of the priests or the Israelites or any of the others. They couldn't do that. They were, they were excommunicated. They were not privileged. And Jesus said, hey, guys, you're, 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 you're violating the court of the Gentiles, robbing them of the reason why they're here is to worship me and, and to fellowship with me. You're robbing them of that, but you're also robbing them of access to me. Uh, this, this whole thing called Christianity is for the nations, not just for a few people. And then what is his motive? Notice his motive described in the last, but you have made it a den of thieves or robbers. His motive is to rebuke them, but not just to rebuke them. He's wanting them to be convicted of their sin and to correct their behavior. And he's being pretty direct. You've, you've, you've taken what doesn't rightfully belong to you. And it made it your own. You've taken what belongs to God and you made it yours. You thief. You robber. But notice the application. We need to articulate God's truth and love. Now, some would say, you know, this is pretty harsh for Jesus to do this. Well, it is pretty harsh. But as I said earlier, this is a drastic, drastic measure for a drastic sin. sin. It, it, these, are, these are drastic measures for a drastic sin. And I think sometimes we need to take drastic measures to correct a wrong. But whenever we seek to correct a wrong, we do this because of love. And, and, and Christ is doing this because he loves them. He knows the consequences that are going to result in their lives because of what they're doing. And because he loves them, he's helping them understand what they're doing so that conviction can set in and correctness can take place. And that should always be the objective in which we approach a conflict is that we must do it in love. Because if we ever do it for any other reason or any other motive other than love, we fail in our message. You can be as right as rain, but if you do it in hate or anger or bitterness or, or spite, you've done it for the wrong reasons. The church is called to love the homosexual. The church is to love the drug addict. The church is supposed to do it in love to the, to the, to the, the sinner. We do it because we love them. Why? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. What? His one and only Son, so that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The reason he came and the reason he died was all because of love. 
There was a time and a moment in your life and he looked down on you and he saw your sin and your depravity and yet he still loved you because he loved you before you loved him and he sent his son even before you loved him and knew him to die for you so that someday at one point in divine moment he could reveal Jesus to you and your sinful condition and the only solution to that is Jesus and he could redeem you into a right relationship with the Father through the atoning death of Christ on the cross. Number four, we see his furious enemies. Interesting to me that notice what happens after all of this commotion and after Jesus has preached his message. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all of the crowd was astonished at his teaching. It's interesting that the resistance combines forces now. These, these two people that were not enemies, they're not really at odds, but they're, they're not really one and the same. These two, this is the first time where, uh, where Mark records that these two people collaborate together. They put whatever petty differences they had and they collaborate together. They come together. Why? Because they heard. They weren't present when this happened. They somehow got a report of what Jesus did in the outer court, in the court of the Gentiles. And as soon as they heard it, they got together. And when they got together, they were angry together. Why? Because Jesus had superseded their authority. They were the authorities. They had to write not only to make the laws, to enforce the laws, and if they wanted to, they could reinterpret the laws. Who is this Jesus? He doesn't have right to do that. I'm here to tell you that Jesus has every right, not only then, but today, to do the same. Notice their reaction. It intensifies. How does it intensify? They conspire together, and they begin to make plans. We're going we're gonna to destroy this dude. We're going to kill him. We're going to take him out. We're going to annihilate his influence and teach him that he is not the divine authority here. We are. What a joke. <laughs> and they do carry out their plot later on, only to be disappointed later on, thinking that they had won, they actually lost. Because the one they tried and found guilty for crimes they didn't commit, and they murdered him on a cross and put his body in a grave, he rose from the dead and was ultimately the victor so that we could be set free. Notice the reason why they delayed in their response. It says because they were afraid of the crowd. They were afraid that whatever they did to Jesus would come back to haunt them. The crowd was amazed. They were, they were astonished. They were thrilled, man. They were in the outer courts, and they knew it was wrong. They knew that, the, that, that this had been done for convenience and for commerce, and they were being taken advantage of and lied to and, and, and cheated and, and all of that. And here walks in Jesus and corrects it all. And they were so excited that he did that and so thrilled by his message that if anything had happened to Jesus in that outer court, they would have turned on them and had rebelled, and there would be an uprising, no telling what the Roman government would have do. And they would have lost their power. And their little, their little, you know, their little nests that they had made for themselves. And so, out of fear for the crowd, they decided they would wait. Gives us an application here. The application is this: whenever you decide to confront and to face the wrong with right, you need to expect and anticipate fear. Fear is going to come. They're going to be afraid of you. But not only will they be afraid, they will become hostile. They will become angry. They will not like what you're saying. They won't like who you stand for, who you represent. And, and they, will, they will become hostile and they will resist 
any truth, especially the truth of Jesus. But it's okay. Why is it okay? That's how they treated him. Should we expect anything different? And I'm convinced that as the decades start rolling around and some of us still have life and breath, you know what I'm saying? A couple of decades, you're still around. Max celebrated, I think, his 90th birthday. Congratulations, happy birthday, Max. Some of us may live to be 90, 100, 110. Things are going to get worse. And when you stand up for your convictions and you set the moral compass, this is how they're going to respond and react to you and to the truth. I'm convinced that churches that stand for truth are going to become smaller and smaller and smaller over the decades, not larger. I think we've seen the pinnacle in the next couple of decades of megachurch status. Unless those churches decide to compromise like the Church of Israel and the temple did and renegotiate the moral standard of Christ. They say and they claim that over 40% of those who sit in the pews of our churches across America today believe in same-sex marriage. Can you imagine? And those who preach anything against it or teach anything against it are going to be in decline. For I'm convinced in a crowd this size, we have some right now who would like to debate that issue with me. It's interesting how parents and people who have incredible faith began to compromise when all of a sudden they wake up and discover their own children have turned gay. How quickly they compromise their own convictions. Lastly, we notice his focused exit. His exit is focused, it's intentional, it's deliberate. It's kind of like the song that I keep hearing Kenny Rogers sing, no when to hold them, no when to fold them, no when to walk away, and no when to run. Anybody remember hearing that song? You got to know when to do those things when you're playing cards. And I know we're Baptists and we don't play cards. But we were Baptists once and we didn't shoot pool, but we got pool in the CLC. Not only do we have pool in the CLC, we got a pool and a pool. We play pool. So anyway. Jesus was very intentional here. Notice what happens. And when evening came, they went out of the city. When evening came, they went out of the city. Jesus was very intentional. He knew that, that these people were out to kill him and he backed off. He wasn't going to do anything that would put him in harm's way. He knew that God had a timetable. God had a plan and God had a purpose for his death. And he was not going to do anything that would, es- that would escalate the, inten- the, 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 the intensity of the conflict. And I think we need to learn from that. There are times when we a- attack and there are times when we back off. You've got to be wise in this. Know when to approach and when to back away. Avoid conflicts, progressive escalation. The thwart, the plan, the intention, and the purpose of God. So the question as we close is this. A moral battle is going on right now between God, country, and church. Compromise is not an option. The question is, where will I stand? Where will I stand? No matter if anyone stands with me or not, regardless if my smile stands with me or not, my family stands with me or not, my church stands with me or not, or my country stands with me or not. As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. It's going to come to that. Where will you stand?
Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com.